for Texas, a T for Tennessee, my love, a T for Texas, T for Tennessee, a T for Thelma, that gal made a wreck out of me. Hello and welcome to episode 1670 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm May Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Okay, how are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah. All right. We've got a Texas two-step today. We've got the two Texas team previews. So later in this episode, we will be talking to Levi Weaver of The Athletic about the Texas Rangers. But first, we'll be discussing the Astros with Chandler Rome. So we're getting there. We are close to opening day. I think we've got four more preview pods after this one. So maybe two next week and two the first half of the following week. And then the end of that week, we'll have opening day. It'll be baseball. Ben, can I pull back the curtain on the podcast for a moment? Sure. So our listeners are probably unsurprised by this, but we have already recorded both of these interviews. So we already know what happens in both of these interviews. And there is a moment, and I don't know if I'm overreacting to stuff or being overly sensitive, but where I might have suggested I was happy that someone in Texas was taking the pandemic seriously in response to something Levi said. And, you know, like... Uh, just in case, I think a lot of people in Texas are doing a very, very good job and are trying to keep each other safe and do right by their communities. And I just, I mostly meant it about the Rangers, but in case that was unclear to anyone, I wanted to say up front that to those of you doing a good job in Texas, hey, thanks for doing a good job. And I hope that uh, your state does better by you because you deserve that. So I was just nervous that someone would listen and be like, Meg and Keith Olbermann, indistinguishable in so many ways, and this is another. Uh, so I just thought I'd clarify that up top. So thank you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you letting me pull back the All curtain because right. I don't want, I, you know, people people in that state have had a really rough go of it, and I don't yeah. want anyone to feel like I'm piling on because that's not my intent at all. So here we are. Keith Olbermann quote tweeted my article about moving the mound back earlier this week, and he was not pleased. Three oh. face palm emojis about that idea. <laughs> is there a, is there an established um, iconography related to Keith Olbermann and emojis? Like, do we know how uh, on the scale of face palms is that like? Yeah, I don't know if that was a lot of face palms or a normal amount. <laughs> I was about to I was a, about to invoke the the DefCon scale, which no one right. understands either. So that would have been <laughs> totally useless from a translation perspective. <laughs> is it yeah. like this other totally um, bizarre thing that everyone gets wrong everyone directionally gets yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we are recording this soon after we recorded the previous episode so we don't have a whole lot of new banter today we are just gonna get right to it and start with the astros so we are joined now by chandler room who covers the astros for the houston chronicle hello chandler hello how are y'all doing doing pretty well so 2020 astros regular season team not so good postseason team quite good but we're talking there about a small sample and an even smaller sample. So which one was more reflective of the real Astros, which is relevant because a lot of those Astros are also current Astros? That's a very good question. And I spent the entire 2020 regular season trying to debate that exact question. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. They were god awful in the regular season. And it was confounding to watch because, I mean, it was the same guys in the same uniforms 
of a team that had just won 100 games for three straight years. That was the super team. Um, obviously, they lost Justin Verlander early. They lost Roberto Osuna, their closer. Jordan Alvarez only took nine plate appearances. The pandemic and the associated protocols were a drain on everyone, not just baseball players, but just everyone on earth, I'd imagine. So I think all of that had some impact on it. But the, but within the organization and um, when you talk to whether it was James Click or, or Dusty Baker or the players, you know, when they're going through these miserable skids, when they're just playing like garbage, they just kept saying, you know, we just need to get to October. We just need to get to the playoffs and we'll flip the switch. And I was probably among the most skeptical of anyone that that was going to happen because they just kept saying it as if it was going to just appear. And it did. They got some great pitching from their young, some young guys that really stepped up last year in, in the playoffs. Carlos Correa rose to being kind of the Carlos Correa we know. Jose Altuve hit the ball out of the ballpark, which is something he didn't do at all last year. George Springer continued kind of his torrid pace as one of the greatest playoff hitters in certainly modern history, um, maybe the greatest playoff player in Astros history. And, you know, they, they, they got close there, but it was just a, I, I think the reason they lost the ALCS, you know, it, it kind of can all be encapsulated into, into why the season was so uneven for them. You know, they, they watched Jose Altuve kind of melt down on a national stage defensively. And when you look back at their entire season, it was their superstars just didn't play like superstars. I mean, Yuli Gurriel was probably the worst player in baseball beginning in September and into the playoffs. Now, I'm not calling Yuli Gurriel like a superstar, but he's a guy that they count on to, to be an above average or elite hitter. Carlos Correa had another regular season where his power was just completely sapped. I mean, he, he, he stayed healthy, which is something he hasn't been able to do. But I mean, all but 14 of his hits in the regular season were singles. I mean, he was a singles hitter in the regular season. Um, Alex Bregman strained his hamstring and kind of had an uneven season by his standards. You know, George Springer played well, Michael Brantley played well, Kyle Tucker played well, but they just couldn't carry that entire lineup. And um, when their superstars started playing well in the playoffs, you, you saw how good they can be. But then, you know, they, they had one meltdown defensively and kind of gave the Rays two games. And that ended up being the difference in the end. There are a lot of things from what you just said that we can unpack, and I'm sure we will, but I, I want to start with one that sort of was a, a patina on their entire postseason experience, which was sort of a defiance toward the outside world, sort of writ large, about their worthiness about being there and sort of their ability to come back and perform well after the sign-stealing scandal. They were obviously spared having to play in front of fans for last year, but that's going to be different this year, and we've already seen, you know, smatterings of booze during their spring training game. So I'm curious sort of how the team is thinking about that and what approach you expect they might take to it this year, because I think that there were people who found their sort of vibe kind of off-putting in the postseason rather than, you know, being excited to be there after a bad regular season showing they were, they were pretty defiant. So what do you expect from them when it comes to their approach to I don't know, PR <laughs> to, to the outside world, to all the booers. What do you think they're going to do? Astros and PR, that always goes well. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I think a lot, they, they all handle it differently. Alex Bregman was asked, I think, earlier this week about what it's going to be like to hear boos, to have fans in the stands. And he kind of took the diplomatic approach and saying, we want as many fans in the stands as possible, as provided it's safe. You know, we're looking forward to welcoming fans back and we kind of just block everything out. Carlos Correa has taken more of an outspoken approach, obviously. He 
claims that his celebration that he does as he rounds the bases where he puts his hand to his ear and kind of encourages fans to make noise. He claims that has nothing to do with the sign stealing scandal in the aftermath, but you know, he only started doing that this year. So I I don't know. I I think it'll be a little bit mixture of both. I think they were preparing for this last year, obviously before the world shut down. And I think they were all going to, they were all going to approach it a little bit differently. I mean, they were preparing if they got hit, they were preparing to kind of put the bat down and go to first base and kind of let their lineup work. And they were going to take the free base. They were preparing no booze. They were going to have extra security on the road. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case again this year, but I think there is a level of, they can use it as a level of, I don't want to say motivation. That's definitely not the right word, but they can use it as a level of kind of swagger and can go in there and kind of, I mean, I understand how off-putting it is. I understand when you hear Carlos Correa come in the, come in the zoom room after they beat the twins in the wild card game. And he's like, no one expected us to be here. Like no one expected us to, Oh yes, they did. You have a $200 million payroll and you have some of the best players in baseball on your team. Like you underachieved the entire regular season. Right. Like, like uh, of course everyone expected you to win. Like, I mean, it, 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 some of it doesn't match up, but it'll be fascinating to see, um, you know, not being in the clubhouse is really limiting um, kind of what we really can see and how they're really processing all this. They get on zoom and they say all the right things, you know, let's bring the fans back. And, you know, we love the Houston fans and we, we want to see as many uh, as we can cheering us on. So it's hard to get an accurate gauge, but somebody I assume we'll talk about a little bit later, Jose Altuve, while no one will say it outright, I, I think a lot of last season, the, the fallout may have weighed on him a little bit. And I'm curious, to see as it becomes more pronounced and as it becomes more verbal whether that continues. Well, Astros fans will probably groan at another sign-stealing question. Maybe everyone will at this point, but I was reminded this week that that fallout is not going to go away at least this year because I was sent an advanced copy of Andy Martino's upcoming book about the Astros and sign-stealing. I think that comes out in June. Evan Drellick has a book about the same subject coming out in August. I don't know what the status of some of those docu-series that were in the works is. Maybe we'll see some of those this year. So do you think that any landmark revelations will come out of that? Do you think our understanding of the sign stealing scandal will change because of these projects that will be coming to light? And do you think people will just be sick of it? Or will there be more rounds of Astro's sign stealing discourse every time one of these new projects debuts? I don't think the discourse will ever end. Um, my Twitter mentions my Twitter mentions suggest it will it will never end. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, certainly, you know, Evan Evan knows these this organization, and Evan knows kind of the players and and that we're here for that. He knows it probably better than anyone. And Andy, I'm sure, did a great job as well. Um, I haven't had a chance. I do have the advanced copy of Andy's book. I haven't had a chance to to get into it yet. Spring training's been. Uh, very, very busy. So, so you know, look, we'll see both of those. And, you know, if there is stuff in there, yes, I'm sure there will be rehashed. And I'm sure Dusty Baker in the next week or so will start to receive the questions again about, hey, you're going to go on the road and there's going to be fans. How are you guys going to respond to this? And that, that's been largely absent early in spring, or I don't even think we're early in spring anymore. I think we're almost done with spring. But the questions about sign stealing have largely been absent. We've seen Jeff Luno give a couple of interviews. We've seen AJ Hinch get a job with the Tigers and, and address it. And nothing's really come out of either of those, I don't think. Ben Ryder did his podcast, and Jeff Luno was a, was a big participant in it. And there, there was some stuff in there that Luno alleged and revealed, but I don't think it led to any more like further, huge, big, 
pieces of discourse. I'll be interested to see personally, and this is something that maybe isn't related to the question you asked, but but I think um, as we move forward and as the years go by, this this won't be something I don't think we can quantify until three or four years down the road. But like George Springer just signed a huge deal with the Blue Jays. He was a big member of that 2017 team and, and baseball did not seem to, well, the Blue Jays, obviously they gave him the biggest deal in franchise history. And their fans are going to adore him. But, you know, George Springer is going to walk in the Yankee Stadium 19 times a year. And he's going to do that for the next five or six years. I'll be very interested to see how he's treated and and whether this is an Astros like booing the orange and blue and the laundry and and the jerseys that these guys wear or whether the, the people involved, the people that were here bear the brunt of this for the rest of their career. It'll be fascinating to follow, but uh, the discourse is not going away. I think every time the Astros go on the road this year, there, there will be uh, a writer from the visiting team get on the Zoom call and ask the requisite questions. Um, they go to New York in, in May, and I imagine that is going to be an absolute circus. So, so it's not going away anytime soon. It's a little less pronounced, a little less, a little less uh, prevalent right now, but it'll certainly, I think, ramp back up when the regular season rolls around. So let's get to some of the guys on the field. You've talked about Correa a little bit. He's obviously a free agent entering next year. And so I guess the first question to ask about Correa is, or have there been, or do you expect there to be extension talks? Do you think that he'll be retained by the Astros? And outside of that, just what are your expectations for him going into 2021? You mentioned that, you know, his year last year was not what he wanted it to be. I'm not quite sure how much to count the small sample of the postseason, which was markedly better because we're just adding small samples together. But what do you expect from him? And do you expect him to remain in Houston beyond this year? It's a, it's a difficult question, as, as, as the last one you asked, whether he remains in Houston. You know, both sides have expressed interest. Carlos Correa has said he has set a deadline for opening day to have these extension talks. If they're, if they're going to get something done, Correa has made it clear that he wants it to be done by opening day. He does not want extension talks in the regular season. So the next week or two could be very telling here in West Palm Beach. But James Click, the Astro general manager, has said that he will sit down with Correa's agent. Correa is represented by WME and that they have interest in retaining him. Of course they do. He's one of the best players in baseball. But Correa has also said that, you know, he's not afraid of free agency. He he thinks, you know, he and Francisco Lindor are very good friends. And he has said on record, you know, I think Lindor and me are the two best shortstops in this next free agent class. He, he values himself very highly. I don't think this is going to be a situation where Correa takes anything less than he feels he's worth. I don't think this is going to be some hometown discount, quote unquote. I think the Astros are going to have to pony up if they want to get this done before the season. And this is the same franchise and an ownership group under Jim Crane that um, in Jim Crane's tenure, the, the longest extension or the longest, the richest contract has been Jose Altuve, six years, $151 million. And, and I think, you know, Carlos Correa is going to shatter that even if he signs before the season. And, you know, if we get into the season and he hasn't signed and he does hit free agency, um, the Astros do not spend in free agency. That's just not how they've built their teams under Jim Crane. That's not to say they don't spend money. They crossed the CBT threshold last year, and they're very close to crossing it again this year. So they do spend money, but the longest free agent deal and the most lucrative free agent deal given under Jim Crane's ownership tenure is a four-year, $52 million deal to Josh Reddick. Carlos Correa will want a lot more than that. And I don't think if they get into a bidding war in free agency, it just the history suggests that it won't end well for the Astros, that, that it's going to go the way that the Garrett Cole free agency went two years ago and George Springer's free agency went last year. So uh, I, I think it's a it's a fascinating discussion. I, I think both Correa and the Astros have 
very good reason to wait. Uh, and I also think both of them have, have pretty good reason to, to do it now. Um, you know, Carlos Correa, as far as what you expect from him this year, I mean, you'd like him to be healthy. I mean, this guy has not played a full 162-game season since 2016. I mean, he, ha- he hasn't played more than 110 games in a season since 2016. His power kind of comes and goes, and some of that is stance-related. Before He tells a story all the time before his walk-off home run in Game 5 of the ALCS. Um, Alex Centrone kind of noticed that there was a stance flaw and the, they went down in the cage and they opened his stance up a little bit and they freed his hands and he went out and hit a ball 110 miles an hour in his next at bat and then his next at bat was the walk-off home run. So he's able to make in-game adjustments pretty well. I, I just don't know if one of the reasons that last year the power was so sapped was the lack of in-game video. He has mentioned that. Yuli Gurriel has mentioned it. Alex Bregman mentioned it. Cue all of the Astros jokes now about not being able to watch video. Um, but they, they did mention that, that it was a problem. And, and one of the things that this lineup prides itself on being very good at is making in-game adjustments. Again, cue the Astros jokes about in-game adjustments. But I, I just I think some return to normalcy will help him. But, but I think with Correa where he may be more valuable, um, he, and he's a, fantastic, he's a fantastic player on the field, but where he may be more valuable is he really kind of stepped up, and he is the unquestioned leader of this team. Now, I, I don't know if you guys remember game six of the ALCS, but it, it really demonstrated that Framber Valdez is on the mound, and he almost throws hands with Yandy Diaz after they are John in the middle of a at bat, and Correa runs in there and just chews Framber out in Spanish, gets him focused and sets him back. And that kind of demonstrated what everyone had kind of talked about all year, that this guy was the one in the clubhouse being the leader, being the alpha male. Obviously, he did. the. He came out and he kind of turned into the voice, if you will, of the Astros' response to the sign-stealing scandal. He acknowledged that it was wrong, but he also kind of challenged anyone that was not bringing facts into the equation, as he said. So he, he has certainly become one of, if not the face of the team, and certainly become a guy that has been the unquestioned leader of the team. So um, I don't know if they'll factor that in. I, I don't know how much of a huge factor it is in their extension negotiations. I have no idea what to expect. This is one of those things that it would be a very un-Astros-esque move to give him a huge long deal before the season starts. They have done extensions before in spring training with Verlander, Altuve, and Bregman and Presley, but um, this is a different matter entirely. This We're talking different money here. We're talking a more long-term commitment, and it would just not be the Astros' way in the last few years to do that, but you never know. The fans want him to stay. They don't have a slam dunk internal candidate to take over at shortstop if he leaves, so um, they're going to have to get a shortstop, I think, either way. In, in this coming winter. And I think a lot of Astros fans would like it to be Correa, but the money's going to have to be right. Well, another position where the Astros didn't have a slam dunk replacement is center field. And George Springer, no longer the Astros center fielder because of the reluctance to spend on free agents that you mentioned. And so in his place is Miles Straw. And Miles Straw will not be replacing George Springer's offensive production, but he has been a decent on-base guy. He's very fast. He's a good base runner and a good defender. So if you put all of that together, does it add up to a productive player or at least a, a competent player? How good is he on defense and how bad will his offense be that his glove will have to make up for? Well, I, I think this should kind of tell you where Miles Straw's head is. This offseason, he went on MLB Network radio and 
they were kind of giving him, they were asking him a couple questions just kind of about his approach and everything. And he said unprompted, you know, if they give me everyday playing time this year, I could steal 50 or 60 bases. He is not short on confidence. He's kind of short in stature. He's five foot 10, but he, he kind of towers over Altuve a little bit. But anyway, he, he's a guy that the way some people in the Astros organization and the way it's been characterized, you know, James Click was with the Rays for a very long time. And the Rays made do with an elite defensive center fielder with a light bat in Kevin Kiermeyer. And I am not here to compare Miles Straw to Kevin Kiermeyer. I don't think that's fair. But they, the Astros believe that they returned seven guys in their lineup that at some point in their career have had above average or elite production. They're going to, they hope, to get a full season out of Jordan Alvarez. They're banking on a bounce back from Jose Altuve, from Yuli Gurriel, from Alex Bregman. They're banking on Correa to hit more than 43 singles in in the regular season. And they kind of just hope, like you said, that Miles Straw can be the on-base guy, that he can get on base, that he can wreak havoc, that he can maybe approach 40 stolen bases. I don't know, 50, I don't, 50 or 60 seems a little bit lofty, but you know, Dusty Baker flirted with hitting Miles Straw leadoff in this lineup, which would be certainly one decision. Um, he hit him leadoff in the first seven or eight Grapefruit League games and has since changed his tone a little bit. It's now between Straw, Correa, and Altuve to lead off. Either way, Miles Straw came into spring training with one goal, and that was just to get on base. That is all the Astros want him to do. They want him to get on base. His major league numbers, it's too small of a sample size to make any grand assumptions over, but he's got a 327 on base percentage and 224 big league plate appearances. Dusty Baker lamented a couple of weeks ago that Miles Straw led the team last year in called third strikes percentage. Um, That is something he cannot do. Um, He's got to be able to make contact. He's got to be able to either put the ball on the ground or hit the ball on the line and just just use his speed. You know, wherever he's at in the lineup, he's got to be able to use his speed to get on base. Defensively, it's probably unfair to say he hasn't looked great in spring training because he hasn't had a ton of balls hit to him. But I mean, there was a diving play that he didn't make and he lost a ball in the lights the other day in West Palm Beach. And those have been kind of too rare defensive gas, but they, they still think this is a, an above average to elite defensive center fielder. And they think, you know, James Click had mentioned it on the record that, you know, he thinks that you can save runs and help out your pitcher with more than just your offense. So I, I think they are comfortable for now. That, that Miles Straw can be the get-on-base guy. He can be the pesky little speed demon on base if he, if he gets on base enough. But, you know, Dusty Baker Dusty Baker seems to, I don't want to say have concerns, but, you know, he, he expects a lot out of Miles Straw. And, you know, when we brought up last week that Straw said in the offseason that he could steal 50 or 60 bases, Dusty deadpanned without even taking a breath. He's like, well, to steal 50 or 60 bases, you got to get on base. And I think that's uh, I think that's I think that's Miles Straw's biggest uh, it's his biggest hurdle right now, and it's something that he'll have to uh, he'll have to prove at least in the first couple months of the season. So I wanted to ask you about Alvarez, and not just because I'm writing the DH blurbs for our positional power rankings at Fangraphs. He had both of his knees operated on last year. I know that Dusty has has sort of wanted to give him some rest between his spring starts. What is the current state of his health, and just how much playing time do you think we can expect from him this year? Your guess is as good as mine as far as the state of his health. We get Chandler, that's not helpful to me <laughs> writing my blurbs. <laughs> we get we get very different accounts of how Jordan Alvarez is feeling from the player and then from the manager. And I think part of it is, and I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, the Astros have never known Jordan Alvarez with healthy knees. So I don't think they know how to approach this because everyone kind of thinks the knee problem was just something that appeared last season. 
Alvarez said last spring before it all shut down, he said that he's played through knee pain his entire professional career. And he just found ways to get on the field. He found ways to to manage it, and it just became too bad after his nine plate appearances last year. So in the old Alvarez, before his knees were, were surgically repaired, if they would send him to play the outfield for five or six innings, he couldn't play for the next two days because his knees hurt so bad. So the Astros and Dusty Baker are proceeding under that that's going to be the same theory, but that's going to manifest itself again. So I think it's a lot of wait and see right now. Bench coach Joe Espada told us earlier in camp that they want to get Alvarez some looks at first base, that they want to hit him ground balls there, and they want to see how that looks. Left field is is probably an option in Minute Maid Park and kind of those shorter porches. But I mean, let's not let's not get confused here. Like Jordan Alvarez is a below average defender. His value to the Astros is in that bat, and they do not want to risk losing that bat for six innings of below average defense in left field. So I would be surprised if he plays a ton of defense this year. I do think they'll put him out in left field a couple of days, but it would really help their roster flexibility if he could find a way to play once a week in the outfield. I don't think that's going to happen, but I mean, they've got another older injury prone guy in left field and Michael Brantley, who has been healthy for his entire Houston tenure, but still, I think they would like to give him a DH day or two to, to rest him a little bit. Um, it would help if they want to give Correa a half day or Altuve a half day, if they could open that DH spot, just to, that was something AJ Hinch did a lot before Alvarez came up and it really helped his flexibility. They just, they, they may not have that luxury this year, but if they get Alvarez at the level he was playing in 2019, um, a lot of people and a lot of people in the Astros organization, they, they were not trying to justify not going after George Springer, but they were saying, you know, I mean, we, we're going to replace Springer's power with Alvarez and they were they, they are counting on a return to the 2019 form and they need they need that every day and to get need that every day it will probably be at DH because they don't think it's sustainable to play him on a near regular basis defensively and then and then keep the bat in the lineup every day. Jason Castro is back and splitting time with Martin Maldonado. How do you see that breaking down? Because, of course, Maldonado would be the short side of the platoon if that's the way they're going to do it. What do you think the distribution will be? Martin Maldonado is the starter. He drew rave reviews last year. The Astros had 10 pitchers make their major league debut last year in what was a complete disaster for their injury wise for their pitching staff there was just they were beset by injury um, ineffectiveness and they had 10 rookies make their big league debut and Martin Maldonado was kind of like their godfather was like their like their sage father that was helping them along and he drew rave reviews all year Um, Lance McCullers Jr. called him the MVP of the team in the American League Championship Series and there are people in the organization that don't disagree with that that you know there may have been guys that put up better numbers but just from how he kept things in check and how he kept that pitching staff together that you know the stats aren't what you would expect from an Astros pitching staff but when you look deeper and you look into how many rookies came up the fact that Martin Maldonado did what he did and he basically was the guy they had Dustin Garneau last year, but but he barely played. I mean, Maldonado appeared in 47 of the 60 regular season games. He started all but one playoff game, and then in the one playoff game he didn't start. He came in in the fifth inning. So they needed Jason Castro to come in and give him like some competent backup, and it's not going to be a straight platoon. Maldonado will be the starter. He. He, he showed some, I mean, anything that you get from your catcher, especially out of these two offensively is Lanyap, but he had a 350 on base percentage in 165 plate appearances last year. He drew 27 walks. Again, 
like all the caveats of small sample size and you know it is what it is it was 47 games but if he can at least do that if he can replicate that then i mean if you get a 350 on base percentage from your catcher you have to be pretty thrilled with that but you know jason castro comes in very familiar with with what goes on here he was obviously here through the dregs of the rebuild he left right after the 2015 season when everything was getting good so he, he's obviously coming back into an organization in a much different place but he's familiar with brent strom the pitching coach he caught lance mccullers jr as a rookie he caught ryan presley with the twins so and he was in the american league west last year with the angels for part of the season so he comes in familiar but but marty maldonado was a starter and if i had to put a number on it i'd probably say 65 35 that sounds about right playing time division but it'll be more even than last year when martin maldonado he said he wanted to play all 60 games i don't think dusty baker wanted that to happen but i wouldn't have been shocked if they allowed it one of the the young pitchers that came up last year was christian javier who was good in mostly the rotation during the regular season and then was something of a revelation out of the bullpen i imagine that he will start for this team just given their lack of depth in the rotation, but what do you anticipate his long-term role to be? Because that bullpen look was pretty scintillating. It's interesting because right now Javier's in a, in a weird spot. Um, the Astros, two weeks into camp, had to quarantine eight pitchers um, at being COVID-19 uh, close contacts. Pedro Baez tested positive, and then there were seven others that had to be quarantined for a week due to being close contacts, and Christian Javier is one of them. So he's probably not, he's going to be in the rotation this year, but he's probably not going to be built up to go very deep when the season starts. So you could see, you know, three or four innings from him in his first turn through the rotation. But long term, I think they view him as a starter. And I think they view him as a guy that could be in middle of the rotation arm for them. You know, and they've got a few of those under team control for a while. They've got Framber Valdez, they've got Jose Arquiti. Um, they've got Luis Garcia, who will probably start a couple of games early while they try to figure out their rotation. And they've got Christian Javier, who kind of has that invisible look with the fastball. The velocity will not excite you at all, but I mean, it's the deception he has. He has a slider and he has, you know, a couple good breaking balls, you know, last year. And I think the big thing with him, he's got a necklace now that's got his, uh, his nickname. It's El Reptile because they call him, they've called him El Reptile throughout his minor league career with the Astros. This is just a guy that he has no emotion. Like he is just stone faced and he is like a, he, he just is very quiet and kind of sulks about like a reptile, like a lizard, I guess is what they were trying to come out. But he's, he's just sneaky. You know, he made his first big league start last year in Justin Verlander's place in the rotation after he blew out against the Dodgers at Minute Maid Park. And he struck out eight and five and two thirds and gave up two hits. So the, the, the big stage does not phased him. He threw very well last year. The home runs can, you know, he, he got a little homer prone, gave up 11 home runs in, in 54 innings. But I, I think they see him as a middle of the rotation arm, you know, going forward. The bullpen look, I, I think, was more out of necessity. I, I think they were just, their bullpen last year was so young and they were relying on so many young arms. Now, granted, I mean, Christian Javier is not a veteran by any stretch, so it's not like they were helping that at all. But they needed to, to give him some looks for the playoffs. Um, they did the tandem system, the piggyback system against the Twins. They used him in that role. So he's a starter going forward, but I, I certainly think you may see him come out of the bullpen the first couple turns to the rotation just because he's not built up. And, and, I, and I think that will be an interesting look for the Astros. 
I want to ask you about a trio of injured pitchers, one who will not be pitching for the Astros this year, one who may be, and one who will be, but has had an injury setback himself. So the first one is Forrest Whitley, who just had Tommy John surgery, and he's someone who has been on prospect lists for, well, depending on the outlet, five years now already. And now we are further pushing back what the Astros hope will be a promising career. But is it still promising? What does this do to his tenuous prospect status? So that's the first guy. Second guy is Framber Valdez. Just sort of a, will he pitch? How is he? And then the third guy is Josh James, who has had hip problems. And I've been sort of waiting for Josh James to be dominant (laughs) since we first saw him. But he just turned 28, to my surprise. And he hasn't really put it together yet. Okay, let's go youngest to oldest. Um, Forrest Whitley underwent Tommy John surgery this week. It was, I mean, it's just, he'll have gone now. This will be a fourth straight loss season. I, I think the number is he's thrown 86 innings of affiliated baseball since 2017. And that was the season that he started with a 50 game suspension for testing positive for a drug of abuse. Look, the, the organization still loves him. I mean, it's five plus pitches. They believe he's got front of the rotation style stuff and he can project to be that. He just, for whatever reason, he has not put it together at all. And some of it is his own fault. Some of it is bad injury luck. Um, you know, the, like we mentioned earlier, the Astros had 10 pitchers make their big league debut last year, and he was not one of them because he suffered a forearm strain at the alternate site. He got to spring training this year and proclaimed himself, you know, healthy and that he could throw 140 to 160 innings. We asked, you know, how his arm felt. He said, quote, everything got cleaned up. And he then added that, no, he did not have surgery this offseason, even though he used the odd phrase of cleaned up. And then he had surgery three weeks later to uh, repair his UCL. So he is a very frustrating sort of enigma for Astros fans. But I think you have to remember that this guy's only 23. He'll be back, best case scenario, middle of next year when he's 24. They like the potential there and he's gone to the Arizona Fall League and he's thrown well in 2018 and 2019 in the Fall League so the flashes are there he threw well at the alternate training site last year Um, when he came to Minute Maid Park to throw in sim games during summer camp he looked pretty good but it's just been a constant with Forrest Whitley there's been like a constant inability for him to find consistency you know every time and and we joke about this on the beat a lot like every time we see forrest whitley he has changed something whether it's his mechanics whether it's his delivery whether it's his weight whether it's where he's living whether it's who he's training with whether it's how he's training um you know there was one spring training where he came and he said i worked out three times a week and played golf the other two and brent strom two weeks later said forrest whitley came into camp physically not prepared to compete for a position um, and then, you know, he showed up to summer camp that, that winter noticeably much more skinny that he had really dedicated himself and changed his routine and regimen again. So he just has to find something that works for him routine wise, regiment wise, you know, you hate to see Tommy John for anyone, but maybe this is an opportunity for him to decompress and have a reset. You know, I do think the expectations of being the top prospect have, have weighed on him a little bit. You know, he's local-ish. He's from San Antonio, not from Houston, but I mean, he's a Texas guy. So like he's he's got a lot of people in the state that, that root for him and that always are looking for what he's doing. So, you know, I, I think that has weighed on him a little bit. So maybe this is an opportunity for him to decompress and, and, and figure some things out. Framber Valdez had the world's longest second opinion on his fractured left ring finger. He fractured it on March 2nd. 
The Astros did not provide an update on his condition until March 17th, at which point they said he saw a second hand specialist in Los Angeles that the x-ray of his finger showed, quote, significant healing. So there is no recommendation for surgery. Valdez is back in West Palm Beach now, but it's still unclear when he'll get back on the mound, when he'll throw. It's worth noting that after he fractured his left ring finger in that game against the Mets, he threw 19 more pitches. He didn't come out of the game. Francisco Lindor hit the comebacker. He glanced off his hand, and then he proceeded to get the third out of the inning and then come back for the second and throw 19 pitches. And velocity looked fine. He gave up a home run to Jeff McNeil, I think, but it, that was just a hanging breaking ball. But And he even said after the start that it was fine. The, the, the hand was fine. The finger didn't feel any worse for the wear. And then they woke up the next morning and it was swollen and they sent for x-rays and then all hell broke loose. So there is optimism that he will return to pitch this year, which is a certainly a boon for the Astros who don't have a ton of starting rotation depth and they didn't even when Framber was healthy. Um, obviously they signed Jake Odorizzi who will also not be ready for the first uh, turn in the Astros rotation, but he's going to provide some insurance both this year and next year when they're scheduled to lose Verlander, Granke, and McCullers in, in the free agency. So Valdez, there's more hope now than there ever was earlier that he's going to pitch at some point this year. Um, obviously, he was the story of last year for them, blossomed into, I, I don't want to call him an ace, but certainly from the team perspective, I mean, this was a guy that Brent Strong had talked about for so long as Mike Trout would always used to say that that's the nastiest breaking ball he's ever seen in the big leagues. And they just kind of kept waiting for him to find his command, find his control. And he went from walking 5.6 batters per nine innings to walking two batters per nine last year. He, he found the two-seam control. He's able to manipulate the curveball kind of however he wants, and it's a, it's a devastating pitch. And he has one of the most resilient and durable arms in the organization. That's why they would transition him earlier in his career from the bullpen to the rotation so easily. So they were very confident coming in that he could give them 160, 180 innings without any question, something he's never done before in his career. But his arm just gave them that that comfort. But now they're just going to rely on the hope that he can give them something this year, which I think um, was in doubt a couple of weeks ago. As far as Josh James goes, he is in West Palm Beach now. He has not joined camp yet, but he had surgery in October to repair a labral tear in his hip. Um, that's a six to eight month recovery, but the Astros do not see him as a candidate for the 60 day IL. So that would give some hope that he can be back in late April, early May. His audition in the rotation last year went pretty terribly. He doesn't have a ton of control and, and don't think he's able to harness maybe all the energy you need to expend for a five or a six inning start. He's got the 100 mile an hour fastball and the Astros may be better served to bring him back as a reliever and let him let it eat for one, one plus inning stints in their bullpen. And I think where he could be of value to this team you know, James Click made a good bit of additions this offseason to deepen their bullpen, to give them some veterans with Ryan Stanek, Pedro Baez, Joe Smith is back after opting out last year. Um, but they do not have a guy in that bullpen right now that you look at and that can get you more than three outs. Um, they don't have a ton of multi-inning guys down there. Josh James can be that guy. He can give you one plus. He can give you two if needed. So bringing him back is, I don't want to say a long man, but just a guy that can get you more than three outs. I think that would be a perfect niche for him to take in the Astros bullpen. Dusty Baker is a treasure. I think we can all agree. Incredibly quotable, but there was some uncertainty about how he would mesh with that front office. 
given that he has been around for a while and has been more of an old school guy at times, and this is a, a new school front office. He was sort of brought in to restore the Astros' reputation, and hopefully he did that to a certain extent, and I think everyone liked having him there. But how did that dusty front office relationship go? Did he adjust to them? Did they adjust to him? Well, I think it speaks volumes that in the first two games of, in the first two playoff games, Dusty Baker did a piggyback, a tandem system for starting pitching. He took a future Hall of Famer and Zach Greinke out of the game in five innings after five innings in Minnesota to do a piggyback start there with Framber Valdez. So I don't know if you give Dusty Baker, you have to give Dusty Baker credit for being open to that. There are some older school managers that may say, no, I'm doing it my way and I want, you know, I want to ride my horse. And if Zach Greinke is your horse, you ride him. You could also look at game four of the ALCS when he let Zach Grinke go. He let him face Randy Rosarena for a third time in the sixth inning in a huge part in the elimination game. Um, so you saw a little bit of both. I think you do have to give Dusty credit for being open-minded. He has talked about how much you know the Astros have taught him. But you know this is Dusty's team, and some of the lineup decisions, some of the bullpen decisions, just watching the in-game management, you can tell it has Dusty's Dusty's flavor and Dusty's kind of mark on it. So I, I think he was perfect, and he has been perfect, I think, for what they needed. They needed somebody to just come in here and restore respectability, I think would be the right word, and I, I think he certainly does that. Um, I think you'll certainly see him more this year, maybe have an influence in the clubhouse just because – if fans are back in the stands, you know, th they brought him here to keep that clubhouse from, you know, splintering when all the vitriol came, when all the when all the fans were booing the Astros and doing everything that we expect them to do this year. So I, I think it'll be very intriguing to see this year how he's able to keep that clubhouse together. It has been a rough year for Dusty Baker, too. He is and was very, very close with Hank Aaron, uh, one of his mentors who passed away, unfortunately earlier this winter um, and he's was friends with a lot of hall i mean the hall of fame had a lot of losses this year and dusty baker was close with a lot of them so th this has been a rough year for him but he seems very re-energized he seems like he's ready to go this is the last year of his contract with the astros i asked him in january whether he would want to continue to manage beyond this year and he didn't say yes but he didn't say no he kind of said well we'll cross that bridge when we come to it so very real possibility that this could be Dusty Baker's last year as a big league manager ending a very illustrious career. But but I think he's certainly got the tools and he's got he'll have his work cut out for him this year, I think, to navigate both a 162 game season and to keep the clubhouse kind of together when fans get back in the stands. So you've mentioned some of the guys who are rolling off in free agency this coming off season. Obviously, you know, we have this uncertainty about whether Dusty will return. There's still going to be pieces of that really impressive Astros core, but I think that this is probably an off season of transition. It's a little unfair for me to ask you about 2022 when we haven't even done 2021 yet, but I'm curious if you think that the organization is going to look at this as you know, a period that necessitates some sort of a step back or tear down, or if they're going to try to move forward with another competitive team next year. And then I guess related to that, this will be Click's first real opportunity to sort of reshape the roster in a significant way. So I'm curious what changes in roster construction philosophy you think we might see given that chance. I think, like you said, I think it's a little early to, to start thinking about that. But I think you do have to remember that, you know, Altuve's here 
for the foreseeable future. Bregman's locked up for the foreseeable future. We talked about um, the starting pitching that they have on the books for next year and Oda Rizzi, Framber Valdez, Jose Urquidy, and Christian Javier. I mean, that's a, that's a solid rotation. Um, they've got a position player core of Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve, Jason Castro's here on a two-year deal. They've got a couple of guys. You know, look, their, their farm system is not great. You know, despite what the, the front office tries to spin of like, well, we like our guys better than the outside publications, they, they don't have a very deep farm system. And that is something they are going to, they're going to have to replenish. Um, they're going to have to make some, some wise trades and they're going to have to get some prospect help in here if they want to continue to make this thing sustainable. Are they a super team anymore? No. I mean, no, they, their days of winning a hundred games are, are over. And I think that starts this year, obviously, but I, I don't think it's one of those things where you take the step back and you rebuild and everything. I think they've got enough of a core to where this can be sustainable. It may not be run away with the American League West every year, but it may be, you know, you're in contention to win the division. Um, you're in contention to get the wild card. And then once you're in the playoffs, who knows what's going to happen? I think we all saw that last year. I, I think, I don't think anyone would have anticipated that Astros team after they had played so poorly in the regular season doing what they did in the playoffs. And I kind of think that accentuates kind of what a lot of people feel is like, I think once you get in, anything can happen. And, you know, I, I think as far as Click's roster construction, I was thinking about it earlier today. He made six, I think you could say six or seven major outside acquisitions this offseason, whether it was a non-roster invite or the chance to make the club or an addition to the major league roster. Of those six or seven, four played while Click was in Tampa. They played with the Rays while Click was in Tampa. Now, whether that is a whether that's a coincidence as to what was out there or whether he leans toward familiarity, I, I'm not sure, but it, it was certainly interesting to see. It was Ryan Stanek. It was Steve Ciszek. It was Steven Souza Jr. The fourth one's escaping me at the moment. But anyway, th there was a lot of former Rays. He was very, he got very comfortable bringing them here. And, you know, I, I think the one thing that this team could probably use is, you know, they don't, they're not particularly deep. Their 40-man roster, the, and I don't think anyone's 40-man roster is like from one to 40 is like the greatest thing in the world. But the one thing when you watch the Rays against the Astros last year, and I'm not saying James Click's trying to make the Astros into the Rays, but like the Rays just seem like a much deeper team. Like Kevin Cash had a lot of different things he could do with his bench. He had a lot of different lineups he could run out there. And they just, from one to 26, it was a deep club. And the Astros, you know, they've got the frontline talent, but their, but their bench is weak. You know, they, they don't have, that depth that I think James Click would like to have. So you maybe could see, you know, so, some deepening of that, getting some more high-level players in that way. But they've got to find a way to, to make the farm system a little bit better. I don't know whether that's going to come via trade. I, I don't know how that manifests itself. I don't know if the lost year of player development um, really kind of sullies the way people look at it. Maybe the, the minor league season happens this year and all these guys that they're talking about being very good, maybe they – Maybe they flash and their farm system's better, but they've got to find a way to get a little bit deeper roster and they've got to find a way to sustain the farm system. But I don't think, you know, no one, James Click, Jim Crane, none of them have said like, we're looking to rebuild. We're looking to take the step back or whatever Jerry DePoto is saying now, like they want to keep this sustained and they know that they have a core to contend. You know, Michael Brantley's here on a two-year deal as well. So like th they can be contenders in 2022. Will it look the same as 2017 to 2019? No. 
but no one's going to look like that except maybe the Dodgers for for that prolonged period of time. And is there still reason to think that the Astros are player development powerhouses or player development leaders, which, you know, insert your jokes about sign stealing and foreign substances, but there is a history of the Astros making players better for other reasons too. And Rob Arthur has an essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual this year about how the Astros have sort of led the majors in the percentage of seasons that have been breakout years by his definition looking throughout their minor leagues and that they've been able to do that with both hitters and pitchers but of course there's been so much turnover for obvious science dealing related reasons in the front office but also just because so many people have been poached as other teams tried to catch up with the Astros so you know if they do still have that talent then that could help them sustain this run or turn some of those non-public prospects into productive players but there's just so many new faces and it's hard to know whether they still have that skill. Yeah, it's a good question. But you also, I, I think their amateur drafting has not been the best. Now, they have also had their first two round picks stripped last year and this year. Um, but I think it extends even before that. But I mean, they've done really well in the international market. I mean, Framber Valdez was a guy that they signed for $10,000 and now he's he is who he is. Christian Javier's in that same mold. Jose Urquidy. Pedro Leon, who obviously got a, a much larger signing bonus, is much more well-known. They love Pedro Leon, the Cuban outfielder who signed in the most recent international period. He'll, he he got to big league camp a little bit late, but he flashed, and they really, really like him. So I think certainly it's, it's, it's fair to question their player development prowess, whether it's still kind of the top of the league, the top of the game, because obviously at one point it was. But I think from the international side, they've done well. Uh, I think their amateur drafting could, could go a little bit better, and maybe that's something that James Click addresses. Maybe that's something he looks at. But I, I do think you're on to something of, like, they, they do find these diamonds in the rough. You know, Josh James was a 30-something round pick. You know, Miles Straw went to a small community college and was picked in the 16th round. They, they are good at finding guys like that and taking advantage of finding guys like in, in diamonds in the rough like that. So as far as their player development, structure goes you know Pete Patilla is still here he's the assistant he's James Click's only assistant general manager and Pete Patilla was their farm director throughout that rise and and how they became so good at player development you know he's still here he still has influence in hiring coaches and kind of how they implement things in the minor leagues so um, while they have had a brain drain a little bit while they have had guys leave you know Ozzo Campo was huge into their into their international signing game. He's with the Pirates now. So um, they, they've had important people leave, but I mean, that's just part of, it's one of the spoils, I guess, of being at the top is you have to be able to replace these guys. And, you know, their, their player development will certainly be under a microscope here in the next few years, because as we mentioned earlier, you know, these are not huge spenders in free agency. They're never going to be the favorite to bring in the established major leaguer on a big deal to kind of compensate for it. So we're going to see some of these prospects they're talking about. You know, we're going to see them come up. You know, we could have to see, we maybe could have to see Jeremy Pena at some point next year if they don't bring Carlos Correa back and if they, you know, go a different route with a short, at shortstop. You know, Freitas Nova, who is also a, a middle infield prospect, and we could have to see these guys. And it would really put to the test and really kind of give the Astros an opportunity to showcase their player development and how it happened. But I would argue that they, that they have showcased and that they've done well with a lot of these young pitchers, you know, having 10 guys make their big league debuts last year and somehow keeping that ship together and getting them to the precipice of a pennant. I think if anything, that's a, at least a feather in the cap for their player development department. 
All right, so last thing before we ask you for the win total projection, we're about to talk to Levi Weaver about the Rangers, and we will ask him about the Rangers' plan to have 100% capacity at Globe Life Field to start the season. Seems only fair that we ask the same question about the other team in the same state. So what is the plan for Minute Maid Park? So they are doing. They they are not going 100% capacity in April. I, I was, from what I understand, that is not in their plans right now. They're not 1,000% ruling it out, but it's not what they're trying to do right now. They they are taking it kind of on a month by month basis. And I I haven't read every team's plan. Maybe this is similar to some other teams, but they basically gave their season ticket holders four options for the month of April. It was they can stay in their current location where their season tickets are. But if they stay there, they were not insured social distancing. Their second option was to move to a socially distanced section of the ballpark. Their third option was to just pause their April tickets and pick them back up in May. And then their fourth option was to donate their April tickets to frontline workers and hospital workers and people like that. So I believe the deadline for season ticket holders to get back to the Astros was two or three days ago. And from that, they were going to use that information to determine how much socially distanced seating they were going to have in the ballpark. And then from there, they were going to move to single game tickets. I believe they started advertising for single game tickets yesterday. So we won't probably know the capacity for opening day until a couple of days before opening day until we can see how many tickets they've sold and where it is. So they're taking kind of a more month by month deliberate approach. Originally, they had said, it was going to be about a 25% capacity. I think it's going to be more than that for opening day, given kind of how they're proceeding. But they are not going full Rangers. They're not going 100%. That's not to say that they won't. And that's not to say that they won't, that won't happen at some point in the near future. But for now, they're kind of resisting that urge. And I don't even know if there is an urge. I'm sure there is from some people that want money. But like, uh, they are resisting that temptation maybe to open the full 100%. All right. Well, give us the win total prediction. I think you guys at Fangraphs had them at 89. That, that sounds that sounds right. I have questions about this team's starting pitching depth. I, I have questions about the bounce backs that they anticipate from a lot of these guys. You know, Jose Altuve is getting older. Yuli Gurriel is 37. Jordan Alvarez's knees are a constant source of concern. I, I, I'm just I'm not sold on a lot of the stuff that they're trying to, to sell, but I still think they have the most talented roster in the division. And I think if they put it all together, they'd be okay. But give me 87, and then, uh, but I'm not too comfortable with that. <laughs> all right. Well, people can follow along with Chandler on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. And of course, you can read him regularly at the Houston Chronicle. Chandler, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And we will be right back with Levi Weaver to talk about the other Texas team, the Rangers. What do we do now? It's a dirty little Texas story. What do we do now? At least we're breathing Austin air. Let's go hero. All right, we are back. It is time to talk about the Texas Rangers. And to do that, we are joined, as usual, by Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers for The Athletic. Hello, Levi. Hey, hey. Always a pleasure, guys. 
trying to figure out whether it would be better to start or to end with the Rangers opening up Globe Life Field and everyone who works <laughs> for the Rangers being mad about it. I guess maybe it's better to get it out of the way and then we can talk about the team and the baseball if it's even possible to separate those things. So... What do you make of the Rangers' decision to have a full house on opening day? And what do you make of the Rangers' front office employees seemingly not being thrilled about that? I'm not surprised they're not thrilled about it. Mm -hmm. Um, The Rangers' ownership, this is not their first gaffe regarding the the pandemic. I mean, it was, I don't remember what month it was. It's one of these marches that we've had recently. (laughs) Um, They brought people back to work from the office when it wasn't necessary. There were no tickets to be sold yet, or it was basically we don't trust you to actually be doing work if you're not here. And of course there was a COVID outbreak and it's just like, it's just one thing after the other with this team this year. And it's not, I feel bad saying that because there are a lot of people, I mean, this morning we had a, we had a zoom call that they are doing a fellowship that was initiated by Charlie Pride to help bring in qualified minority candidates who want to work in the front office and and give them a 10-week process where they sit in on these high-level meetings. And that's great. That is the sort of thing that I want to really be excited about. And But it just seems like there have been so many stupid, terrible decisions in the last year that just have overshadowed it. And this is one of them. There's and and that's not just my opinion because I don't want to go outside. Like that, is, I, I called I called an epidemiologist and like, hey, if I'm wrong here, please just let me have it. Like, but I, I'm a big boy; I can handle it. The story isn't published yet. Tell me, tell me if this is what what is this a good idea? And I think the word was frustratingly premature that I got from from our resident epidemiologist. So it. Yeah, it's a stupid decision, and and the team knows it. Here's how I know the team knows it. They're not allowing uh, tailgating outside the stadium on opening day. And I asked them, well, why? And they said, well, you know, we're following CDC guidelines, and we we just want to avoid groups of people gathering. (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. (laughs) That makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, to, To slightly alter a quote from WandaVision, what is a crowd if not a group of people gathering? It's, uh, yeah. So they're going to go to they're going to they're going to have some socially distanced sections available after opening day, but right. they want to make after sure they opening day, right? Cash in on opening. That's day. kind of the giveaway, right? I mean, right. The fact that if they weren't doing that ever, then I guess you could just say they're not aware of the problem or something, which would you know not right. be any better. But you could just say it's consistent at least, mm-hmm. but. The fact that it's not consistent, that it's just like, well, while we can fill this park, we're going to fill it. And then once we will not be able to fill it, (laughs) then Then we'll be able to claim that, oh, we made these socially distanced sections available. (laughs) A socially distanced section when you still have to walk through the concourse is like a no smoking section in a restaurant. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Unless they are planning on putting up like fiberglass and filters around the socially distanced section and giving them their own entrance, well, then it's not really that effective, is it? It's been an interesting year in Texas. I think that, you know, if we want to shift to just that could encompass all manner of things, couldn't it? Um, (laughs) Every day, it's something every day in the state. And I like, sorry, I know this is not the Levi Weaver therapy hour, but like, it's been good for me to live in Dallas for the last few years. I mean, I spent a lot of my younger years trying to just get as far away from Texas as possible. And it's been good for me to come back and be like, oh, this is not where I grew up. It's not, my experience was not universal. 
but it is everyday something with Texas politicians or Texas business owners like Jerry Jones, somebody. Somebody every day is like, I'm going to be the main character of Texas today, and it's never good. Well, if we if we want to focus on the front office for a moment, there has been a change afoot. John Daniels obviously remains with the organization, but they brought in the very tall Chris Young um, yes. to, to serve in the organization as well as a, as a general manager. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm curious just in the time since that's been announced, sort of how you've seen that manifesting itself in the front office and what sort of the working relationship between those two has been like. Yeah, um, that's been really interesting to watch just, you know, as, as little bits of insight that we can get. Chris has said on a number of occasions that he's learning pretty, you know, he's, he's learning as fast as he can. There's a very steep learning curve, but he doesn't really expect to be sort of fully functional as quote unquote the GM for probably another year. It's almost like he is he has the title and now he's working into the title. And it's been it was interesting to me to talk to the to the assistant GMs as well because I was like, wow, did you know did you guys feel like you got passed over for the job? Did you know that John Daniels was moving to president of baseball operations and there would be a general manager position open? And the two that I talked to were were both very much like, who cares about titles? Like Chris Young's super smart and he's going to help us win. So yeah, this is great. Like bring him in. And they, every, they've all kind of described it as just a team atmosphere. Like, okay, Chris Young is the GM. Sure. But we're all sitting in a room together, making these decisions together. So it's kind of more of a committee or a team than it is necessarily a flowchart of power, if that makes any sense. So, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that we'll fully know exactly what his, I guess, leadership style is for another year or so. But, but that's nice, right? Like he's he seems very humble and like he's not afraid to admit that he's still learning. And so I, I, I don't know. That's that's a tactic that I've used in the past to earn grace when I think I might make a stupid decision. <laughs> like, hey, just learning here, guys. <laughs> um, but I mean, Chris is, I mean, he's obviously a very intelligent individual. So I think it's it's more just humility than the way that I used to use it. I guess if you'll forgive another sort of philosophical question about the org, it seems like there's been a bit of a shift in the way that they prioritize talent acquisition, both amateur talent acquisition and then in trades. Like they've, you know, they've gone after Nate Lowe. They drafted Justin Foscue. They brought in uh, Chris Davis from Oakland. These are guys who are like sort of positionless. You know, Willie Calhoun might fall into that category too, obviously not a recent acquisition, but sort of positionless guys who are statistical performers in various stripes, whereas before it seemed like they were marked by like big frame, big tools guys. And so I'm curious not only how cogent of philosophy that has been for them, but where that change is emanating because Daniels is sort of the common thread over time, but he's you know he's still in place and there seems to have been the shift so where is that emanating from the organization it's a good question i mean I, I do think that everything that happens in baseball ops probably comes more or less from the desk of john daniels i know one of the things that we had, we've talked to him about in recent years is kind of a shift in philosophy on having good at bats which really <laughs> that seems like that's a very simple way to describe a complex thing that i'm going to try to describe but Whereas they would draft guys with, like you said, big tools. Now the the idea is maybe drafting more guys that are more well-rounded, if that makes any sense. Um, at least from a hitting standpoint, where you're not giving away as many at bats, and you're, like, more like the Nick Solak type. I think he's I think he's probably the the platonic ideal of the type of player that they have tried to to sort of focus more on. You know, I remember there was a stretch for a while that they would get like these under the radar 
guys from Georgia that were like football stars and like, well, he's an athlete. We can teach him to play baseball. And that mostly didn't work out. So yeah, it's, that is a really good question. And I wish I had a better answer for you that, that sort of taking better at bats as dumb as that sounds as an answer. That's the one sort of directional thing that we've got, but you're right. You can tell the difference from their drafts that even the Josh Young and Davis Wenzel type that they took the year Mm -hmm. before in the draft, that's, that's a different type of draft pick than they did before. And so I'm sure some of that is just a recognition that, Hey, what we're doing isn't working. Let's try something else. Yeah, well, speaking of trying something else because things weren't working, it it seems like the Rangers are now just officially in the rebuild, in the youth movement, and it's not totally clear to me like when that decision was made, when they officially shifted over into that, because like last offseason, the Rangers were, you know, going after Anthony Rendon and other mm-hmm. prominent players, and maybe that had something to do with the fact that they thought they were going to be opening a new ballpark with fans in it, but... There it is. Yep. <laughs> It's been, what, four seasons now that they've had a losing record, and I guess they've sort of just embarked on this process. So should it have happened sooner? And what flipped the switch from kind of still trying to contend to realizing that this is not the window? Yeah. You know what's crazy is I think that it probably should have started in like 2016, but then they had this crazy season where they had, you know, Ian Desmond had a, not a I don't want to say a career year, but had a, a phenomenal year. They, they, they started winning all of these one run games. And all of a sudden it was like, well, we should probably try to go ahead and win the division. And they did. Right. Um, if they had started the teardown, then I think it probably would have been more effective. You could have traded you Darvish a year earlier. You could have traded, I mean, a lot of and Mitch Moreland, you probably could have traded instead of letting him walk in free agency. You would not have traded for Carlos Beltran at that point. So, so that was one of those things where like good luck ended up being bad luck, I think. I do think it kind of did start in 2017 and when they traded Darvish and a lot of these acquisitions since, I get the sense that a lot of them were for the sake of, yes, we have a, like trying to do two things at once, right? Like field a team that is going to be not embarrassing that first year in the stadium when we're trying to get fans in, but at the same time, try to do a rebuild. And so they were signing guys like Drew Smiley and Shelby Miller that, you know, if this goes well, maybe we can trade them. And then they signed Mike Miner and Lance Lynn. And the idea was to trade them and they, and they did, but both of those trades just did not, they were like a year later than we expected them to be. Mm-hmm. And Daniel said of, of Miner that the previous year that like the, just the, the offers actually on both of the guys that the offers that they were getting were not He's, I think the word he used was that, that we would not have been proud of the return that we got. It came out later, of course, that Lance Lynn basically used the, the ability to opt out of the season as a de facto no-trade clause, mm-hmm. which he, he didn't have a no-trade clause, but he's like, well, I could opt out. So if you thought you're just going to let it be known that if I go to a team I don't want to go to, I'm going to opt out. A genius move, frankly. Um, so that, that didn't really work out for them. But but yeah, it's it, trying to do two things at once is rarely ever the most effective way to do either of those things. So yeah, I guess it was kind of last year where, where it began in earnest. But at the same time, some of those young guys that they've got are now to the point where, you know, looking at the acquisitions that they made this year, it's a lot of guys that are kind of, hey, you're, you know, Mike Fultonavich uh, is what, 28, 29 years old. David Dahl is, is right in that saying, 26, 27, I think. A lot of these guys are in that age range of like, hey, if there's an opportunity for you here to still be around when the team is ready to win again, when this next wave of guys is really ready to go. 
And I think the reason for that is that the the group of guys that they had that was supposed to be the last wave of of young guys hasn't really panned out. You know, Nomar Mazara is gone. Uh, Ronald Guzman is fighting for a place on the roster, and for that matter, so is Rugnet Odor. Uh, Joey Gallo was an All Star that one year, had a real bad year last year. So that core that they thought they were going to have really hasn't materialized, and I think they're trying to rebuild a core and also rebuild uh, a, a youth core at the same time. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Gallo because he did have that just incredible 2019. He had a 144 WRC+. plus. I continue to contend that no human that size should be able to field or run as well as he can. Mm -hmm. um, it, it remains confounding. I think that the, the presence of Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge in the league means that people underappreciate how massive a person Joey Gallo is. Yeah. Um, so, and then he had a, a disappointing 2020. And I, I'm curious first, like what you and he maybe attribute that to and what your expectations are for him this year and then if he does have a bounce back and you know is somewhere between what he was last year and what he was in 2019 is he going to be a guy who's on the roster at the end of the season or is he going to be you know enticing trade bait wow that's a lot to parse uh through. sorry um, it's like no 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 please it's, enjoy it's, my 19 part question <laughs> no no it's it's good because you're exactly right on all of these things what he sort of attributed last year to was a, a couple of things one uh as the park i mean he kind of got a late start i mean people forget like he had COVID 19 at, at why did i just use the official medical term COVID-19. What happened there? He, it's very nice he to have someone in Texas embracing that. I'm sorry, yeah. that was ungenerous. He, he, this this magical thing that doesn't exist, he had it. No, he, he caught COVID and he was, I guess, late to, he was late to camp and didn't really get a full camp to prepare for the season, got off to a slow start. And then at that point, kind of with a, with a short season trying to play catch up of like, wow, I've only got X number of games left to really get my numbers back to where they need to be. That was at least what, what he attributed it to. And so far this spring, he's he's looked a lot better. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, the question of whether they trade him or extend him or allow him to hit free agency is is a really big question. I think a lot of the, he's basically the, with Elvis Andrews gone, he's like the guy now that has been here as long as anybody. He's kind of the face of the franchise at this point. So, but Last time we asked him about it, which was last year, he said that he hasn't been offered any extension yet. So maybe they would trade him. I, I, I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer for you other than to say you are correctly identifying all the questions. And I think that's <laughs> certainly something that everybody is keeping in mind as they watch the team this year. Yeah. How did the first season of Globe Life go? I mean, apart from the fact that it was empty and it's kind of hard to judge a ballpark when it's empty, but it seemed like through most of the season that it was going to play more like a pitcher's park. And mm -hmm. certainly when the Rangers were playing there, it did mm -hmm. when they were batting, at least they slugged 369 at home last year. And then the postseason rolled around and other teams played there and suddenly it looked like, oh, maybe they just didn't have good hitters and that was why they weren't hitting there so do we know how this park will play and what's your review of the aesthetics of the park which didn't look great on tv i think but maybe looks better in person yeah so i think we're going to find out a lot in the first couple of months of this season because there were a few games in the regular season where the roof was open and the offense was up in those games. And so there was some talk like, well, maybe that's a coincidence. You know, it, ha it hasn't really been open that much because it's freaking hot in Texas. And if they can have the air conditioning, why not use it? Um, and then during the postseason, because there were fans in the stadium, one of the 
things was, well, we have to keep the roof open because, you know, we don't want to have a bunch of people in an enclosed place. With the roof open in the postseason, all of a sudden the ball starts flying out of the park. And so there's certainly some speculation, and I think I might be among the people that believe this, that with the roof open, the ball is going to fly a lot further than with it closed. So that'll be... I, you know, we'll find, because there will be fans in the stands again this year. They're they're saying that as, unless there's rain, the roof will be open for at least the first month or two of the season. So we will find out if that is the case. Aesthetically speaking, I didn't really. We we weren't allowed to really walk around the concourse during this the regular season, and then during the postseason, there were just a bunch of people walking around. Most of them wearing masks, but some of them just sort of carrying a bottle of water and pointing to it and being like, I'm actively drinking. You don't have, you can't make me put on my mask. So I opted not to spend a whole lot of time down there. So I don't really know. I haven't really got a chance to walk around the park yet, believe it or not. I am, I'm kind of excited to do that once I am vaccinated and immune. The press box is very, very, very high. So it's we like literally above the sky cam. I have photos on my phone from the postseason where like the Fox or whatever their their sky cam was just like running around and it's fifteen to twenty feet lower than where I am, so that kind of sucks to watch a baseball game from up there. But it is it's pretty. The view from behind home plate, like looking out the the left field wall, it's like a big glass wall, and you can see the facade of the old stadium, which is sort of depending on your point of view, is either beautiful or maybe just taunting fans a little bit. Yeah, I I don't I don't dislike it. I will say it, I don't think it looks great from the outside. I, the the Home Depot comparisons from that photo that came out last year I thought were probably pretty well pretty warranted, especially when they had such an iconic facade of the last stadium with the red brick and it was really beautiful and you know that sucks from the outside. But yeah, I I I do think on the inside it looks nice. I think it's pretty. It reminds me honestly a little bit of Safeco, which is one of my favorite parks. So um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's. It's not. It's not terrible. I wish the press box were lower, but it's not terrible. Yeah, it struck me as as a ballpark that maybe doesn't play as well on TV as it might look in person. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so here we have the Rangers. They're embarking on this rebuild. Presumably, they want the next good group of Rangers to come up and have good player development. And then they have a pandemic. I'm curious sort of what the approach of the organization was. Presumably they had some of their guys uh, at the alt site and they were able to keep a close eye. And and the same is true for Instructs. But what was their approach for the guys who were at home and having to sort of self-direct their development last year? Yeah. I mean, it was just a lot of like, there were a lot of home workouts. There were, there were guys that were in Arizona um, that were, able to, to work out at the complex there a little bit, um, especially, I guess, rehab guys. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of them, it, it, I, I don't really know how much actual instruction they got. And I would be like, if I could just do any coverage that I wanted to, I think when the season started, rather than be in Arlington, I would like to just go to Arizona and hang out and watch the minor league spring training and just talk to those coaches and see like, hey, how is it? How's it going? Like, are any of these guys did any of them forget how to play baseball over the, over the last year? Because it was, it was tough. It was very difficult for them to, there's only, there's only so much, I guess, direction you can give from afar when guys are living all over the country, you know? So, so I, I know that they they were in touch. There was a lot of communication, but as far as like what they were able to actually do, I mean, it's as far as tangible coaching, I, uh, I don't know. 
I don't know that they were able to do much at all. Well, I'm pretty delighted by the positional progression of Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, and we've yes. talked about how unprecedented it is to have this collection and sequence of positions that he has played and will be playing. So starting shortstop, Andrus is gone. They gave him the job now. How is he as a shortstop? Because obviously he can handle third really well. Mm -hmm. He can win a gold glove there. He's played some short. Is he just a, a capable shortstop? Are they hoping that he'll be a plus defensive shortstop? It's just such a weird and wonderful career that he is having. It is, yeah. He So he started as a shortstop, was drafted as a shortstop, but kind of just kept getting leapfrogged by guys on his way up. And so sort of realized, oh, look, I'm, if I'm going to be able to advance, I'm going to have to play other positions. Part of that was because he went like five or six years without a single home run in the minor leagues. Um, just had no power at all. He has been able to add a little bit of that to his tool belt. I mean, he's never going to be a 40 home run guy, but he could be maybe in that sort of Andrelton Simmons range as far as like, you know, he might he might pop off 10 or 15 home runs one year. Defensively though, I, I don't think there's ever been any question that he could play. Not Andrelton Simmons range. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, it's hard for me to say. Like I, Obviously, watch the Rangers a whole lot more than I watch other teams. And I, I've seen kind of Falefa play some shortstop based on what I have seen, but I guess on some level, based more so on what I've heard from people in the organization. There's talk that, I mean, I think there are people in the organization that believe that he could be not just a passable shortstop, but a borderline elite defensive shortstop. So I know he, he, I guess, had a conversation with Chris Woodward at the end of last season and basically said with a lot of conviction that. He, you know, I am the best defensive shortstop in the organization. You should let me play shortstop. So, and, and I don't think he was wrong based on what I've seen. And it'll be, uh, I'll have a, a more well-informed opinion on this after watching it for a year, of course. But but just, I, I, I think he could be a very extremely good defensive shortstop. Here's what I think is, what I'm looking forward to is this, after this season, because there are a ton of shortstops coming, out, uh, coming in on the market. I know Trevor's story is from this area. There's a lot of whispering that the Rangers are super, super interested in acquiring Trevor Story. Does Kiner Falefa play a good enough shortstop that it makes it a very difficult decision for the Rangers? Not whether they want Story in the organization, they do, but whether they are signing him and trying to convince him to play third base. That to me will be an interesting... I just realized there are going to be people, people that listen to this and be like, are you freaking kidding me that Isaiah Kiner Falefa might bump Trevor Story off of shortstop? I'm not saying that's going to happen. I just wonder if it's going to be a difficult decision. That's all I'm saying. The Rangers made a number of trades this offseason, but their signings tended more to the minor league side than the major league side. There were a couple of exceptions to that, and Koei Arihara was one of them. He signed a two-year deal. It's a very reasonable contract, so I don't know that there is a bad version of him, just given how little money is attached. But I'm curious what the organization's expectations are for him and what drew him to Texas of all the places that he could have gone. Yeah, as far as expectations go, I mean, I think the hope is that he's a number three or four starter type. I, you know, I don't think there's any illusions that he's going to come in and be the next ace or even the next, no, he's not going to be the next U Darvish, but somebody that can th pitch reliably, throw a lot of innings, uh, limit contact, hopefully to bad contact mostly. And, you know, I, I, I think if he comes in and has a 500 record, then then the organization would be thrilled with that. As far as what drew him to Texas, one of the things that we we heard was that in their in their meeting with him, 
that their presentation of sort of metrics and their study of his arsenal and like here we know the pitches that you throw here's how you use them here's how we think that we could possibly help you use them better with your sequencing Brendan Sagara is one of the the Rangers have co-pitching coaches this year he's one of them and he said when when COVID hit they knew that Arahara was one of their targets and so he basically just sat at home in Hawaii watched a lot of video of Arahara watched his starts in Japan, uh, charted his starts, and basically like obsessed over Arihara. And when it was time to make that pitch, they had a guy on the line that was an expert in Kohei Arihara. And I guess that was impressive enough to convince him that the Rangers were where he wanted to be. And what are they hoping that Dane Dunning will be? He's someone they went after, obviously, and so they must like him. And there are people who say, oh, he's more of a, a back-of-the-rotation type guy. He pitched a little better than that in terms of results in his rookie year. But where do they think he'll settle in? Yeah, I mean, you only get to trade Lance Lynn once, mm-hmm. so they must think a lot of him. <laughs> I, I think this year, because he's still recovering from Tommy John surgery, and you know, had, he only pitched 34 innings last year. If that's, I hope that's the right number off the top of my head. It is. Okay, great. Uh, you guys are more prepared than I am. Uh, that he <laughs> he's going to be part of a um, of a tandem situation in their rotation to kind of just limit his his overall chronic workload, and I, then I think. The hope is that at some point in 2022, he will emerge and be uh, a regular member of their rotation. As far as the expectations of what that'll look like in 2022, I, hard to say. I think a lot of that depends on how he does this year. But yeah, I mean, if, if you've got Lance Lynn, you've got a chance to trade him. And as good as he was the last two years, if Dunning is the guy you got back, I got to think they think quite a bit of him. Yeah, uh, and I guess of the more veteran-type guys in the lineup, like Solak, I mean, not that these are old players, but yeah. Solak and Low, guys who've been around Guzman, there are a bunch of guys sort of in that like 26 to 28 range, David Dahl, mm-hmm. Trevino, etc. You know, of the ones who have been prospects who haven't really panned out, or at least haven't totally fulfilled their potential. Is there one that stands out to you as this is the guy with the highest hopes, or this is the one who is most likely to reach that ceiling still and be more than just sort of a a stopgap to keep the team from being truly terrible as it does the teardown? Yeah, let me think about that for just a second. I mean, Willie Calhoun comes to mind. He's, He's had a pretty bad run of luck. You know, for a while it was maybe some of his own doing, um, maybe some of it was not his own doing, but then, you know, last year he gets hit in the face with a fastball, fractures his jaw and he's back for the regular season, but also like he admitted just standing in against left-handed pitchers. He was just jumpy, comes back this year, ready to go. Feels like he's in good. I mean, he lost like 20 odd pounds a couple years ago. It has really worked hard and your heart goes out to the kid who just like Every year he thinks this is the year, and then every year it ends up not being the year. Now he's going to start this season on the injured list with a, a groin strain. I think if ever he gets an extended chance, he is going to be perhaps not an above-average left fielder, but a, an above-average hitter that probably eventually settles into a DH role. Another really interesting one to me is is Ronald Guzman, because mm-hmm. the Rangers traded for Nate Lowe, and at the time... They said, yeah, there's going to be competition for the position, but our hope is that he's our starting first baseman. You know, we just, without saying we're done with Ronald Guzman, they were basically showing their hand that they were pretty well done with Ronald Guzman. Guzman goes and wins MVP in the Dominican Winter League, comes to camp looking like a new man, and he's hitting really well this spring, has started to take 
Uh, he's playing right field tonight. He's played some left field earlier this spring. It, it looks like he should be on the team, and he's out of options. He's, he doesn't have any minor league options left. So they've either got to trade him, or like, is that? Are you going to put that guy on your bench and he plays a really great first base and might be able to be an outfielder, or do they put Nate Low in AAA because he does have a minor league option? Do you run the risk of you traded a fairly significant package of prospects for a guy? And then you send him to the minor leagues. Like, is he going to be a disgruntled employee at that point? So that's that to me is maybe the most fascinating battle of of camp. Is like, what what do they do there? What do they like? How how does this work out? I don't know. I can't believe that I'm going to beat Ben to a question on Mike Fultonovich, given that Ben <laughs> drafted him in our minor league free agent draft. Um, he obviously had a disastrous 2020, yeah. but has been a good major leaguer in the past. Again, like it's hard to have a bad one-year deal, especially for just $2 million. But I'm curious what they're expecting out of him and if you have any insight into what sort of gave them confidence in in signing him even for $2 million. You know, it seems like he was not uh, particularly popular when he was put on waivers. So tell us a little bit about Fulte. I am very bullish on Mike Fultonavich this year. He, I, I think he might end up being the steal of the offseason. And this is where Old Takes Exposed is going to pull this audio and come back at me in August. <laughs> But he, part of the problem, I talked to Dave O'Brien, our, our Braves writer, and I was like, what what happened, man? Like his fastball was sort of 87 to 91. He used to throw 98. Like what gives? And O'Brien said he just, he lost a lot of weight uh, in the off season. And talking to Fulton Davidge this week, he's like, yeah, I doesn't really have a great workout situation available to me. And uh, and he said, I'm just, a, I think what he say, a, a good old picky eater who just, would be around the house during quarantine lockdown and just kind of forget to eat, which I know really infuriates a lot of people, but I, I, I can relate like that is me. I'll, it'll be five o'clock. And I'm like, why am I angry? I'm angry for no, Oh, right. I didn't eat again. That's what it was. So, uh, so yeah, he lost a ton of weight and his fastball velocity was way down. And so, yeah, this, this off season ate a bunch, worked out a bunch, hit the weights, had a better workout situation, had weights available to him. And his, his fastball velocity is back up 95, 96 right now. And he was like, even in my good years when I was throwing 98, at this point in spring, my fastball is usually around 93, 94. So he's ahead of schedule, uh, has looked really good. We'll find out more tonight, I guess, when he pitches against the Reds, but has looked really good this spring. So um, if this ends up being like a pillow contract for him or the Rangers end up trading him at some point as the, as the deadline approaches, I kind of think it's going to be a good year for him. And... Um, yeah, that's my. If you're asking me for a, like, pick to click or whatever it is that we do on this show, that's that's probably my guy for 2021. <laughs> yeah. Well, last thing before we get to the prediction, you did a, an article a couple months ago about things you're looking forward to about the season, and oh, yeah. one of them is Leary Tavares, who was uh, impressive in some ways in his rookie season mm-hmm. and pretty valuable in not a ton of playing time. How good can he get and what more strides does he have to make? I think defensively, he's already very, very good. What I love about watching him in center field is that he will make very difficult plays look easy. And if you're not paying attention, you're like, oh yeah, that's uh, that was an out. And, but if you sort of watch back on the video, you're like, oh, oh wow, he got a really great jump and holy cow, that guy's fast. And that was not an easy catch that he just made. So defensively, I think he's going to be very good for a long time offensively that's that's kind of always been the question there's been some 
some question about his at-bats even this spring. The, the hope was that he would come out of camp as the leadoff hitter who could use his speed to impact the game at the top of the lineup. Uh, he has since spent some time at the bottom of the lineup. So, I don't know. If he can hit, if he can have not just good selection of you know what to swing at, what not to swing at, but then also to do some damage when he does swing, I, I, that's always going to be the question. So yeah, I'm looking forward to watching him play defense. I am curious as to whether he will be able to hit enough to allow that defense to be something that Rangers fans get to watch for a decade or so. All right. Well, we will end, as always, by asking you for a win total prediction. Oh, gosh. What did I have last year? Oh, right. I probably <laughs> said something stupid because I didn't know it was going to be a 60-game <laughs> season. Um, yes. A <laughs> hundred and ninety wins this year. Uh, let's see. I think they're going to be better than people think, but also not good. Let's go 79, 79 and 83. All right. Well, that would be an improvement over worst record in the American League, I yeah. imagine. So. Yeah. No, I, I don't think they're, they're going to be as bad this year as they were last year, mm-hmm. which sounds strange considering that Lance Lynn is gone. And But yeah, I, I think they're going to be better. All right. Well, you can follow the Rangers season on Twitter with Levi at 3-2-EFIS and, of course, by reading him at The Athletic. Thank you, Levi, and stay safe. All right, thanks. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. I should note that we spoke to Levi just before the Rangers game on Thursday night, in which Mike Fultonevich pitched and did not pitch well. So Levi tweeted, Me at 7.45 p.m. on a podcast? I'm extremely bullish on Mike Fultonevich this season. Me at 9.02 p.m. after nine hits and six runs and three innings, two of which he did not finish. If I have learned nothing else in the last month, I have learned that this means it's time to buy the dip. Anyway, not a great night for Fulton but apparently his velocity was fine. I think he hit 95, so as long as he has his health. I also wanted to mention that Baseball Reference recently relaunched the app formerly known as Game Changer. I know some of our listeners like it and use it. I've written about it before, so I just wanted to put out this PSA that it is still available. Baseball Reference got sued by Dick Sporting Goods, which owns Game Changer, the app for stat tracking in youth baseball and softball. So Baseball Reference has changed the name. It is now called StreamFinder, but it still offers all of the the great functionality that it did before. It enables you to turn your MLB TV feed into an NFL Red Zone channel of sorts as long as you're on a computer. So you can set it to switch to certain players when they come up or certain situations and it'll just automatically bounce from game to game. It was designed by a friend of the show Dan Hirsch at the Baseball Gauge before being ported over to Baseball Reference when Dan started working there. So you can find it at baseballreference.com slash stream hyphen finder I will link to it on the show page. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jerry Krupp, Will Crosby, Katie Razor, Sean Viziak, and Dan Friedman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Dylan Higgins was off today, so thanks to myself for editing assistance, I suppose. We'll be back with another team preview pod next time. It'll be an NL East-centric show. We'll be talking about the Mets and the Marlins. So we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back early next week. Oh,